Hi everybody and welcome to the Junction Church Podcast. We pray that this message inspires and encourages you. If you would like to find out any more information about us, then please visit our website at www.thejunctionchurch.com. Thank you for listening. Uh, how are you guys all doing tonight? We all good? Excellent. Well, I'm going to do a message tonight that is basically about why we do the things we do. Why we do the things we do. And one of the things that kind of interests me in, in people and uh, the people that I, I come around and, and, and do life with is, is just the, the idea of motivation. You know, what, what motivates us? Uh, and I think the motivation, understanding motivation, is uh, really powerful because it helps you. If you can take somebody's actions and you can place it, frame it within the, the idea of what motivates them, then you can relate to it. You can relate to a person, even though an action might seem totally weird and totally bizarre, if you understand what motivates them, you can relate to that person, even if they're like from a totally different walk from life. And, and, and all of us are from different places. You know, we all approach life from uh, like different, different places. And, and, and so that because we approach life or because we all come from different realms of life, uh, when it comes to making decisions, when, when it comes to the choices that we make, we all have like this different set of criteria, this, this motivating criteria that, that sort of helps us make the decisions. But we all kind of make different decisions because we all have different things that motivate us, right? Yeah. We all have different things that kind of uh, make us want to do a certain thing because we're all looking for slightly different outcomes. It's all about what kind of motivates us. But the thing that kind of interests me is that in our Christian walk, as we, as we do our Christian lives, we, all of us here will kind of face common challenges. Common challenges. Something about as you walk as a Christian, you, you face common challenges. But we are charged to adhering to a response that is templated by Jesus, that is templated by Christ. There's this conformity of faith. You know, faith sort of brings us into a same sort of, we're, we're looking for the same outcome. We're, we're looking for doing the same thing. Faith and, 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 and our walk with Christ kind of unifies us in that sense. That, that we're in our natural sense, we, we approach things and have agendas that sort of look for different outcomes in our faith, there are, there, are, there are driving forces. There is something that has been templated and blueprinted by Christ uh, that, that really sort of sets a path for us. And, and I want to talk about tonight one of those, those great challenges of our, of our Christian faith, of, of our Christian lives. In fact, probably the very biggest one, the, the, the one that, that is the challenge that lies and sits before every single one of us. And so uh, if you want to turn with me to Matthew 9, uh, verse 35. And it says, Jesus went through all the towns and villages, teaching in their synagogues, proclaiming the good news of the kingdom and healing every disease and sickness. When he saw the crowds, he had compassion on them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. Then he said to the disciples, the harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. Ask the Lord of the harvest, therefore, to send out workers into his harvest field. What does it say about Jesus there? Say so Jesus, he saw the crowds and he had compassion on them. Why, why did he have compassion on these crowds? Because he saw them and he, he recognized a helplessness 
that sort of rested over them. That it was, they, they, they were harassed, even though they might not necessarily have, have realized it. You know, we, we all have that sense of harassment that the, the days and the circumstances sometimes place upon us. You know, we, uh, and, and it says that he saw them and they were like sheep without a shepherd. Yeah. They were like sheep without someone to lead. And, and, you know, we have to understand that this land that he was in, it was not, it was not short on religious men. There wasn't any shortage of clergy. There wasn't any shortage of, 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 of religious people. But there weren't shepherds that were doing the job of seeing the sheep. They were, they were, they were, they were idle shepherds. You know, they were, they were more loiterers than laborers. You know, and, but Jesus... Jesus didn't wait for the lost to find him. He went out and found the lost. And, and you know, when, when Chaz was speaking about red frogs, red frogs to me is, is, is such, a, uh, such a powerful ministry within the church, such a, an amazing thing that, that we have an opportunity to do and to support and to, to sow into because it's such an immediate an exact response to this call that God puts out. You know, our teams, they, they go out into the streets and the clubs to support the harassed and helpless. Yeah. The harassed and helpless. The people who don't know that they're helpless but are and are harassed. You know, the pressures of life around them. And, you know, for all the people who've, who've gone out and, and, and stepped out into the clubs and the streets in the middle of the night, I, I know for myself there's, there's like a certain tension in it. There's a tension in stepping out because, you know what, we, we all have something that unifies us here today. We, we've all come into the house. We, we have a security in our surroundings and in the relationships that we have with one another, right? We have a, there's, a, there's a security because there's, we have a common faith and it unifies us and, the, and it makes us, it brings a sense of safety. And yet at the same time, when you step out, when you step out in the streets and the clubs, it's like there's an excitement, there's an energy because it's the, it is the arena. It is the testing ground. It is the place where your faith demands action, yeah. right? It's, it's, a, it's, it's, it's a little bit unpredictable. You don't know what's going to happen, but, but it stretches you because you're, you have to be at ease with the environment, but you have to stay faithful to the mission. You know, it's, it's one, of our, one of our church values is to be, uh, to be relevant, and, and relevance has that it has that, that tension to it because, you know, when you're, when you're standing in a club, you can't look like a square peg in a round hole. You can't, can't look like a square can't look like a Bible basher standing in the corner trying to, trying to make sure nobody gets drunk or anything. You know, you can't do that. You won't fit in. Nobody will go near you. You have to have an ease with your environment. But you can't get carried away. You have to remember why you're there. The guys can't be out grabbing numbers while the girls are having a dance and nobody sort of does anything. That's just going clubbing. <laughs> You know, you've got to have a remembrance. You have to have a, an integrity about why you're there in the first place. Yeah. You know, those sheep that Jesus saw, those, those people that he, he saw and, and characterized as sheep without a shepherd, they were sheep without a shepherd. Mm-hmm. But they were shepherds, but they had sheep. Because the sheep 
that the shepherds had. And even if they were idle shepherds, they still had sheep because they had the community of believers. They had, they had the, the people who came within the house, the, the community of, of, of uh, I guess, uh, the, the Jewish uh, who came in and, 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 and took their place in the synagogue. They, they had a community. They had a house. But when Jesus refers to the harvest, he is referring to the community that resides outside of the house. Yeah. The people who sit in that, 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 that are beyond the borders. That is the harvest. And, and you know, those, those people, they, they, they live lives that are isolated from God. They live lives that are, that, are, that are distant from God. But they are actually way closer than they, they would ever imagine. So much closer it's only like a decision. It's only an encounter with God, and it changes. You know, I, I think of them as like they are the dormant disciples, the dormant disciples, because it resides within us all. We all have that need. We all have that longing. We all have that desire to feel that love, that, that, that love without restraint, that love without condition. And that's what Jesus, that's, that's who Jesus represents. And so, you know, he, he, he has a word for, for the dormant disciples, the harvest field. And so there are points in our lives as Christians. You know, we, we understand, we've, many of us have heard that verse. We understand the harvest, we know it is there. And, and there are times where in our lives where we, we answer that call, where we fulfill our potential to raise up disciples. Amen. There, there are times where we just, it just clicks. We get it going. But then there's all the rest of the other time. Yeah. All the rest of the other time where, like, we know the calling. We are cognizant of our role within it. And yet, somehow, we just don't marry the two together. We, the two just don't come together. And, and I guess my question is, what is the difference? Because it resides within us both. We're capable of both. So, so what's the difference? Why, why are we sometimes able to thread that needle that we are able to sort of harness the anointing and, 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 and really just sort of rise to the occasion? And yet, why are there also times where we have both things? We have the thread and we have the needle, and yet we never make the two come together. The two just sort of stand there. What, what is the difference? What is the difference? Because it resides within us both. Well, I've got two answers for that question here tonight. I have one that is very simple, and I have one that is rather introspective. Now, the simple one, it's simple, but it's not very helpful. Uh, and the one that is introspective is, is helpful, but only if you kind of place yourself within it. If this is just some, uh, if it's just a theological exercise, and we will continue to look at the thread and look at the needle but we will never sow. Amen? So we need to place ourselves in it. So first simple one. The first simple one is, well, it is always way easier to pull off doing nothing than doing something. It is always way easier. I have these moments on my settee, uh, and I, ha- I call them like an epiphany. And they usually happen. They happen after like a very similar set of circumstances. It's usually as I'm staring into an oversized bag that used to be filled with crisps. And I'll sit there and, I'll, and, I'll, and through the, the haze of salt and cider vinegar, I, I, I have this epiphany and it's, I stand to my feet and I raise my hand and say, that's it! I'm going to get fit. <laughs> I'm going to get fit! And I don't. I usually find myself sitting on that settee of, week, a day, a few
few hours later with another bag of crisps. And I, I, I resign, I, I, I demand of myself that, that, that I'll do something about it. But, but it's way easier to sit and not do something. Even if you understand the rationale, even if you understand the context, even if you appreciate what role and responsibility you carry, it's still way easier to do nothing at all. But don't worry, I told you that answer wasn't very helpful. <laughs> the second answer is, and for it, I want us to look at two accounts of when Jesus called people to follow him. So the first one is about the fishermen. And it's in Luke 5, starting in verse 1. One day, as Jesus was standing by the lake of Gennesaret, <laughs> do not envy Kevin for his message this morning. I would have read those verses and kept on reading. <laughs> The people were crowding around him and listening to the word of God. He saw at the water's edge two boats left there by the fishermen who were washing their nets. He got into one of the boats, the one belonging to Simon, and asked him to put out a little from shore. Then he sat down and taught the people from the boat. When he had finished speaking, he said to Simon, put out into deep water and let down your nets for a catch. Simon answered, Master, we've worked hard all night and haven't caught anything, but... Because you say so, I will let down the nets. I'll just stop it there for a second. On the surface, it's kind of hard to say that Peter did anything wrong in that situation. But I think you really have to look at the spirit in which he sort of agreed to Jesus' command. Because he kind of agrees in the same way that you agree when like a peer or, or even a subordinate asks you to try something as opposed to an elder. You know, he sort of almost kind of almost begrudgingly and he, he does he calls Jesus master but I th- really think that's like an acknowledgement of like his his standing as a as a religious leader he's like oh, has to call him master but when it comes to fishing I don't think that that Peter sees Jesus as his equal and so his response although in agreement carries more than an air of condescension which he will come to regret continuing When they had done so, they caught such a large number of fish that their nets began to break. So they signaled their partners in the other boat to come and help them. And they came and filled both boats so full that they began to sink. I'll stop there for a second again. I don't know what your vision of Jesus is. I I think we all, because it's a personal relationship, we all see him slightly differently. I think that Jesus, just reading through some of the scriptures, has a little element of rascal to him just a a little 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 righteous amount of mischief and uh, I just think that he would have seen this scene unfold and would have roared with laughter I just think he would have thought it was the funniest thing that these these fishermen who were so proud and and underestimated the abundance of God were about to have two boats sink from the abundance (laughs) That they'd poured out. That he poured out. I just think he would have been laughing his head off. And, and who could blame him? Because really, what's the worst that can happen? He can walk on water. So uh, <laughs> when Simon Peter saw this, he fell at Jesus' knees and said, Go away from me. Lord, I am a sinful man. For he and all his companions were astonished at the catch of fish they had taken. And so were James and John, the sons of Zebedee, Simon's partners. Then Jesus said to Simon, Don't be afraid. From now on... You will fish for people. So they pulled up their net. They pulled their boats up on shore, left everything, and followed him. Now, 
when Peter comes ashore, he's, he has he is realized that he has totally misjudged this man. Totally misjudged him. And, 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 and in the process, humiliated himself. Uh, he, he not only addressed Jesus kind of slightly, you know, with, with, with an air of dishonor, but, but he'd almost caused disaster at the same time. And, and for a man that Jesus is about to invite to follow him, it's not like he's saying all the right things. What's, what is he saying? He's saying, go away from me. Kind of the opposite. And I am a sinful man. The thing is, though, the thing is that he isn't saying all the wrong things. Because he's saying them on his knees as he's falling before Jesus. And I think that Jesus saw Peter and these fishermen and and there was something that set them apart from the crowd. Just this, this humble nature, this malleability, that they could, be, they could be, you know, fishermen one day and fishers of men every day after. That they could be experts one minute and humble students the very next just think that Jesus saw something that, that just set them apart. And what did, what did it say they did? What was their response to Jesus' bidding? It said they left everything and followed. All of the things that defined them and validated their worth and stature, all of the things they depended on and had spent their lives mastering, all of the people associated with those things, their families, their colleagues, their communities, everything they knew and relied upon was left on that beach as they followed Jesus, as he opened their eyes to the possibility that their lives could have an influence upon mankind, that they could have an impact upon their brother and their sister, that they could be more than fishermen, that they could be fishers of men. Now compare that with the rich young ruler. Rich young ruler. From Luke 18, verse 18. A certain ruler asked him, Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Why do you call me good? Jesus answered, No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not murder. You shall not steal. You shall not give false testimony. Honor your father and mother. All these I have kept since I was a boy, he said. When Jesus heard this, he said to him, you still lack one thing. Sell everything you have and give to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven. Then come, follow me. When he heard this, he became very sad because he was very wealthy. Jesus looked at him and said, how hard it is for the rich to enter the kingdom of God. Indeed, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for someone who is rich to enter the kingdom of God. Now, this, this passage starts with this, this young ruler, and he, and he comes to Jesus, and he, and he asks, what, what do I need to do to inherit eternal life? And, and that's a fair question. There's nothing wrong with asking. He, he's, he's Jesus. Why would you not ask him that? And then when he's asked about his worthiness to receive that gift, he's confident that he qualifies. I've kept all that stuff since I was a young man. But the thing is, and it goes back to a little bit of 
what I said about Jesus being a little bit of a rascal, is that it's sort of a trick question. He's kind of baiting him a little bit to see whether his response will be this self-righteous claim. And, and it kind of is because I did this since I was a child. I did this since I was a boy. But, but that's kind of irrelevant because the answer to the question of are you self-justified is no. Like all of us, sin is synonymous with our human condition And he was no more righteous by the virtuousness of his deeds than either you or I. You know, you still lack one thing. He always lacked that one thing. He lacked a savior. Now, his money was a good substitute for a savior. In fact, it was such a good substitute that he determined in himself to remain loyal to it. And forfeit eternal life. And Jesus, Jesus could have just said, Hey, you seem you seem like a nice kid. Just follow me anyway. But the problem with that is that the one thing would have still been there. And you know what? You cannot go into the harvest field unless your hands are empty. You cannot work in the harvest field if your hands are full. And I honestly think, I know this from my own life, that, that every time that, that I have walked in the opposite direction of the harvest field is because I am clutching something else and I am carrying it off because I have placed that in greater importance. I clutch that for all things. And, and see, this verse is it's particularly melancholy because it, it talks about the cost of following, the price of following, but also the price of not following. The price is not for faith's cost and faithfulness's reward. The cost of yielding appears steep depending on how, how firmly you grasp what Jesus asks of us, what Jesus asks for us to leave behind. So what does Jesus ask? What, what is the difference between the harvest watcher and the harvest worker? And I, I want to tell you a bit about just where I think this answer got, this question got answered in my own life. When I was uh, in school, when I was very young, uh, I really struggled in school. I really, really struggled. I found school very difficult. I was in like the low, 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 low group in the class for nearly all of primary school. It was, it was really. I just never had that, that natural aptitude that, that it seemed everyone else around me had. I, and I really struggled. And I really kind of determined within myself that I just wanted to be successful academically. Like I, I, and, I, and the reason was because I felt like it would compensate for this sense of inadequacy and inferiority that I had within me. Just, I just felt so ill-prepared and, and, and just inadequate that... I felt like if I, if I did well in school, if I, if I managed to achieve, then that, that would somehow compensate for it. Then that would make me not feel like that anymore. 
but I struggled all the way through school, and I, uh, I found it really tough, and I always had to work very, very, very hard in order to pass exams, and I, I managed to get to university, and it was really, it was not any particular academic gifting, it was, it was really just sheer determination that I got there. And I, my, my parents told me years later, years, years later, that even though they had really encouraged that dream and never sort of, never put any doubt on me, that secretly between the two of them, they just never had felt that it was something that I would be, you know, suitable for. They just didn't think it was for me. None of them had ever gone to university, and they didn't really see it as a big, big problem if I didn't. But, but they wanted to inspire, sort of, that I could aspire to something greater. And, and, and they put that, they allowed that dream to remain there. And, and I got there. But, man, when I got to university, it was so difficult. You don't, it, it, it's a, such a different world. You don't have, sort of, the same... I moved away from home, and I, it was just... It was really tough. And I, I got through university, and it was... Every year was a real struggle. And I got to the end. I got to my final year. My uh, engineering has a sort of weird system where you do a master's, but it's undergraduate. So it was five years at uni. And I, and I was in my fifth year. And the fifth year broke up. The first half was like sort of classes and then exams. And then the second half, second semester was doing a dissertation. So I did all my classes and I went for my final exams. And I placed it before God. I said, God, I want to give this my all. I'm going to try my absolute hardest and just ask you to be with me. I just, just, I, 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 I trust you in this. And I, I did my exams. And I did really good, but I didn't do great. I didn't, I didn't get that, that highest accolade. I, I, I was not trending towards getting that top mark. And for the first time in my life, for the very first time in my life, I just settled it. I just decided to change the script and I allowed what God said about my life to mean much more than what any test or what any grade said. What I basically said was, I know that I am a son, a son of the living God. And so whether I do well in school or not, whether I achieve good grades or not, he will prosper me. He will help me overcome. I will see success because he is my father, and I know he has good things planned for me. And so for the very, very first time in my life, I sort of just settled that question. It was, it was no longer going to be the thing that validated me. It was no longer going to be the thing that determined whether I was feeling inferior. In fact, I laid down that shield and allowed God to be my justifier, God to be my validator. And for the very first time, and it was just, there was a peace there. The funny end to the story is I went and did my dissertation, and it was, it was once again, it was a struggle. It, it, went, it, it was very hard, and uh, I actually took an even more difficult route than I probably needed to because uh, it was slightly more interesting, and it took me closer to Laura uh, for my sort of final part of university. And I, and I did it. It was tough, but when it came to the results, the results were pretty conclusive. They were really good. My dad, who had worked at university for many years, gave me tremendous input and helped me so much construct my final report. And I got so much support from the people around me, people who uh, I'd met at church who had gone through similar things, and they really helped me and really equipped me. And when it came to getting my final grade, when it came, to, it came through the door, by the grace of God, it, I opened it up and it was, that, it was that top mark. It was a top mark that I had never achieved at any other point throughout my university career. And yet, at the very point at which I'd said, it doesn't matter anymore, God gave it back to me. Funnier still, it doesn't even really matter that much. It's a nice thing to have. I'm pleased that the five years 
I'm able to walk away with that. But I very rarely think about it. And I talk about it even seldom. Even right now talking about it, it feels a bit weird. I, I, it just isn't. It's a nice thing to have, but it does not define who I am. It is not something that I feel puts this great value upon my life. It, it's just not that thing anymore. In fact, the thing that I now take greater, I don't know, I find a greater accomplishment is the fact that God took me on that path and all of those struggles, the, to feel familiar in a struggle, to be comfortable in the uncomfortable is, is an attribute that God has nurtured within me that to me, means far more than anything else. It gives me far more application. And, and my point of this whole story is, it was the point at which I laid down my identity in some sort of success and recognized that my identity, when it comes through Christ, and Christ alone makes me a conqueror makes me a successor. Whether anything around me testifies to that or not, I know that he testifies to that. Yes. Amen? Yes. And so, when Jesus asked Peter and the young ruler to, to give away their possessions, he wasn't, he didn't really want, he didn't, wasn't interested in their possessions, he just wanted them to relinquish the identity wow. that they found yeah. in those possessions. An identity that gave them value and purpose. Jesus needed them to understand that the value and purpose that comes from being identified as his follower, a value that is not bound in expertise and wealth, a purpose that is not found in provision or status. Jesus' calling validates us as sons and daughters. And it purposes within us a heart after the Father's heart, a heart for his lost children. After that, that, that passage that I read to you from uh, about the, the young ruler, there's, there's a little bit that, that follows on straight afterwards. In uh, Continuing on in, in verse 26. Those who heard this asked, Who then can be saved? Jesus replied, What is impossible with man is possible with God. Peter said to him, We have left all we had to follow you. Truly I tell you, Jesus said to them, no one who has left home or wife or brothers or sisters or parents or children for the sake of the kingdom of God will fail to receive many times as much in this age and in the age to come eternal life. Now look at, look at what Jesus lists as the things that are left behind for the sake of the kingdom doesn't talk about assets, doesn't talk about titles, doesn't talk about careers, and he doesn't talk about reputations. What does he talk about? Jesus outlines our connections. The connections, the, the fathers and mothers, the communities, the sphere of influence that orbits around us. That's what he lists as the things that we, 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 we leave behind for the sake of the kingdom. And what does Jesus promise? That in following him, we will not fail to receive many times more connections. Yeah. That, that an even greater sphere of influence would surround us in this life and in eternity. Why? 
Why is that? Because following Jesus is not to the detriment of those around you, but it is to the enrichment of the generations. It is to the enrichment. You know, we, when, when, when we are, when we come and we, and we, and we work in the harvest field and, and lives and souls are added to the book of life, yeah. it enlarges our world. It enlarges our world. When we come and, and, and we allow that identity to be imprinted from Father God, when we allow it to be what defines us, when we allow his word and his love and his purpose and his promise to be the thing that elevates us, then we go into the world with the same heart as the Father. We see the lost children and we want them to come into our influence, our sphere, our network, that our world enlarges. God wants to see our lives enriched, but not in something that, is, that can be taken away, something that is just superficial, that is surface deep, but something that has purpose, that's something that has depth, that's something that can go into eternity. And nothing, nothing in this world can see eternity except the person sitting next to you and the person sitting next to them and the person outside the door. The lives that we touch when we go out into the harvest field and we approach it as the son and not the slave, as the laborer and not the loiterer, that is when we bring that word that wakes the dormant disciple, that raises them back to life. Amen? Thanks for listening. If you have any questions or you'd like to find out contact information or service times, then don't forget to visit our website, www.junctionchurch.com. God bless.